it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in every single weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, It's three hours. If you can't listen as we air, there's a podcast every day. Comes out each evening. GuyBensonShow.com. It is on demand. It is free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're new to the show or just sort of getting acquainted with us here, thank you. Welcome. Glad to have you. I'm the political editor at TownHall.com. I'm also a Fox News contributor. Catch me on the panel tonight. On Kennedy's show, Fox Business Network, it's eponymous, it's called Kennedy. 7 p.m. Eastern Time, FBN, see you there. Let's talk about today's lineup, and we are once again jam-packed as the news really is coming at us fast and furious. Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox, he will be here later this hour. At the top of the next hour, Byron York, a Fox News contributor and a columnist, he'll be here. Then, also in that same middle hour, we will go live to Ukraine with Mike Tobin, correspondent on the ground, to get some flavor, some color from him, and the very latest from what he is hearing, what he is seeing, get that report. At the top of our final hour, the so-called happy hour in the 5 p.m. hour, Juan Williams will be here talking politics, maybe the baseball season getting delayed, and more. That's with Juan. And toward the end of our final hour, just after 5.30 Eastern time, we will have a one-on-one interview with Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky. He is the Republican leader in the United States Senate. We'll ask him about last night's speech from President Biden. Also, his meeting today with Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Judge Brown Jackson. That's all ahead on a very busy Guy Benson show on this Wednesday Let's start with a Fox News alert, as we always do. Coronavirus stats in the United States, the confirmed case count, all in, cumulatively, 78.9 million. For reasons that we often discuss, that's nowhere close to the real number, which is much higher. The death toll, Americans dying with or of COVID, 950,785 over the course of this pandemic. The markets are surging today. The Dow is currently up 615 points, and there are 51 minutes to go until the closing bell. So it's been a rough few days with a slide. Now we're seeing some green on the screen. Dow right now at 33,911. Well, I made reference to last night's State of the Union address. I watched it, so you didn't have to. Right. If you're into this sort of thing, and there are some folks who love the pomp and the circumstance and the politics of it, I'm sort of in that camp. Like if I were a normal person out there not living a politicized life because I work in this industry, I would probably tune into the State of the Union, although I'm not sure. There are other people who find it a complete waste of time. They don't like the pageantry at all. They think it's silly, 
and they don't watch for that reason. They want it to go back to the old tradition of a handwritten or typed out speech or not even an address. It's more like an assessment that was then delivered to Congress, and that was it. Like hand-delivered, not in person with a whole show. Then I think there are most Americans who just don't really care. And that's not because it's Biden or anyone else. I would guess that last night's TV ratings were probably not gangbusters. If I, I haven't seen the numbers yet. But if I had to guess, probably not off the charts. But I think there's just a lot of folks who have other things to do on a Tuesday evening. But not me, because I have a job and I was working for all of you. So here are my overall thoughts. I wrote about some of them at townhall.com on the tip sheet earlier today. You can go check out that piece, follow some of the links, see some of the embedded tweets and videos. I thought that the opening, which was clearly written recently on Ukraine and Russia, for the most part, was pretty good. I think that there are fair criticisms of this president and this administration on the issue of Ukraine and Russia. I'm not just giving him a pass. But as far as what could be done realistically on that subject, with a lot of people watching and wanting to project strength and solidarity with the Ukrainians and boost their morale, I think overall it was pretty good. And part of the reason was the whole chamber was filled with people who agreed. Right? There was unanimity in that room on behalf of the Ukrainians. And so this wasn't just a tit-for-tat partisan thing where half the room stands up and the other people sit on their hands. This was a unified roar of approval for the people of Ukraine, for the ambassador of Ukraine. Here's just a montage of some of the stronger moments in that opening passage on this issue before things, in my view, really went south. The speech overall was a dud. But this was the highlight, and luckily for Biden, it was at the beginning. Cut two. Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world, thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. He thought he could divide us at home, in this chamber, in this nation. He thought he could divide us in Europe as well. But Putin was wrong. We are ready. We are united, and that's what we did. We stayed united. Putin is now isolated from the world more than he has ever been. We're cutting off Russia's largest banks in the international financial system, preventing Russia's central bank from defending the Russian ruble making Putin's $630 billion war fund worthless. We're choking Russia's access. We're choking Russia's access to technology that will sap its economic strength and weaken its military for years to come. Now, I'll just make a quick comment here. And I don't want to be cheap or glib. And I tweeted this last night. The speech, I think, overall would read better in a transcript than it sounded coming out of the mouth of Joe Biden because he can't really talk very well. He's not a great orator. He never has been, but it it's not great these days. And some of those moments and flubs we'll maybe have a little bit of fun with later at the very end of the show. It's not 
really that important when it comes to serious analysis of what happened last night, but it was noticeable. Now, part of it was because, and this is where I think the speech really fell short significantly, after that opening portion on Russia and Ukraine, he pivoted basically on a dime to domestic issues and the whole laundry list of stuff that he wanted to address. And he wanted to jam in a bunch of different topics. And that's not unusual for the State of the Union address. That's sort of, you know, the laundry list is the cliche. It's what they do at these things. But it was just jumbled. And it was jarring. Sometimes you're sitting there like, whoa, he's already onto something else. There was no connective tissue, rhetorically. Part of that's because I think it was not written terribly well. Also, it wasn't delivered well either. So you add up those components and you get a speech where there was a certain sense of whiplash. of like, oh, he's on to the next thing. There wasn't really an attempt at a transition there. He's just bouncing and careening from one subject to the next. And part of that, I guess, was time was of the essence. It was already long. These things drag on. It was more than an hour, of course. So you want to squeeze in as much as you can. What he didn't squeeze in, not even for 10 seconds was a reference to Afghanistan, the war that America waged for two decades, where a lot of treasure was spent and blood was spilled. And in that disastrous withdrawal, the disgraceful withdrawal that Biden oversaw, a lot of Americans supported the idea of getting out of Afghanistan. The way it was done was so shockingly incompetent and derelict that it is a stain on our military history. It's a stain on our national conscience. We still have thousands of people there that we left behind, breaking promises to them. And it was the point. You want to see where his approval ratings, the president, really started to take a nosedive? That was it. He's never recovered. But you might recall at the time he said, oh, it was an extraordinary success. Right, He had that insulting claim, an extraordinary success, so extraordinary and so successful apparently that a few months later he couldn't be bothered to even mention it in his national speech to the whole country about sort of like the recap of the year that was and looking ahead to the next year. He talked a lot about a lot of specific things from insulin to abortion to curing cancer. I mean, he packed a lot of subjects and topics into the speech and as i said before i think it was a mishmash it didn't flow in any sort of way that made logical sense for the most part but he couldn't get around to afghanistan i saw that jen saki was asked about that the spokeswoman today circled back and she said well look you know these speeches you get a lot in but you can't get everything in. there's just not time all right i mean priorities Afghanistan was not mentioned, except for this one little moment that a lot of people are talking about. There's this backbencher member from Colorado, a Republican, who at one point heckled the president while he was at the lectern. And we'll play it real quick, cut 38. Headaches, numbness, dizziness, a cancer that would put them in a flag-draped coffin. I know. One of those, one of those soldiers was my son, Major Bo Biden. 
So just a few things quickly on this, because I know it's a hot topic in the media. They're like, oh, here's a chance to dump on this Republican member. I thought it was wrong for her to do that. A classless move. She's talking about 13 flag draped coffins, of course, a reference to the 13 men and women who were murdered by terrorists during that chaos in Kabul. That's not the time or place to do it. It was rude. A number of people are pointing out that Biden was then invoking his own son's death, which is true. He does that a lot. It's clearly a huge event in his life. He sometimes sort of implies that Bo Biden was killed in combat, which was not the case. He died of cancer. Extremely sad. But he was sort of bringing that example in. The timing there made it seem like she was heckling him over talking about his own dead son. I'm not defending, and I'm not going to defend, what she did or how she did it. I will point out that was the only reference to Afghanistan in that chamber for the entire evening. A decision was made by the president and the White House. Remember, he's commander-in-chief. To just airbrush that out as best they can of our collective memory, which is disgraceful. And the memory of those that we lost, including those 13, I think should have been recognized and honored in some way. And so for all the people who are, you know, reaching for the smelling salts that this woman said what she said about the 13 fallen Americans, again, I don't think she should have done it. I'm not defending it. I think the glaring omission was that topic completely from the president's remarks. And I'm also not interested in comportment lectures from the people who were all high-fiving when Nancy Pelosi literally ripped up the State of the Union speech behind President Trump. Remember that? And a bunch of conservatives were like, oh, that's disrespectful. And people were saying, well, you can't talk about comportment because you support Trump. I mean, to some extent, a fair knock. But people were complaining about it. And these liberals, the progressives, were like, oh, cry more, right-wingers. She's being a badass and a strong woman. You do it, Nancy. Madam Speaker. Nevertheless, she persisted, whatever all the hagiography and cheering it on was. She was the Speaker of the House, not some first-termer on the back bench. That was the Speaker of the House up on the podium behind the president, ripping up the speech. So, I'm just, you know, if, if you were kind of defending that or enjoying that, I'm not really interested in your thoughts on decorum this time around. Now, the president last night said a few other things on substance that I think were factually wrong. And I want to get into some of those. We'll also talk about his immigration comments and a few other things upcoming. Overall, it was just kind of a mess, most of the speech. A rehash, like a lot of build back better again. It's like he was taking us on a personal tour through some of the stuff he hadn't accomplished saying Congress should pass things that they've already rejected. If you were looking for a big, grand reset of this presidency, which he needs, he's in the 30s on approval, you were sorely disappointed last night. Even David Axelrod, Obama's guru, said this was not a tide-turning speech. Uh, yeah, you think? 
All right, more analysis ahead, plus Britt Hume still to come this hour. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. And as my dad used to say, it gave the people just a little bit of breathing room. Unlike the $2 trillion tax cut passed in the previous administration that benefited the top 1% of Americans, the American Rescue Plan... The American Rescue Plan helped working people and left no one behind. It's the Guy Benson Show. So that was last night President Biden lying about the tax cuts under the Republican Congress and President Trump in 2017. And you could hear the jeering from Republicans. And then he was like, oh, but our giant, wasteful $2 trillion boondoggle that couldn't even get, what, testing ready for the holiday surge or the school funding to keep schools open that a lot of schools are saying they didn't have yet, that boondoggle, he's like, that left no one behind. And then they all cheered on the Democrat side. I feel like we're going to be fact-checking on this issue for a very long time, cleaning up the Democrats' endless lies. They lied about it then. Armageddon, the sky is falling, the government's going to starve, it's Frankenstein, all these poor people are going to die. It's not true. He said it benefited the top 1%. Actually, it benefited everyone. Every income group in America got a tax cut under the plan. According to the left-leaning Tax Policy Center, 80% of Americans and 91% of middle-class Americans got a tax cut under the Republican plan. And wages finally in the middle class and working class went up. It's like they want you to forget how the economy was doing in 2019, right? They protect, they predicted and projected that the whole economy was going to come crashing down. Deficits were going to balloon. Only rich people were going to benefit. And by 2019, You had a roaring U.S. economy before, of course, the pandemic arrived from China. Their predictions were wrong. Tax revenues went up, not down, even with tax cuts having taken place. That's how it works with growth. Biden tried to come out and say, oh, that's not true. That only benefited the rich, unlike my plans. By the way, also not true. Biden's plan would raise taxes on millions of the middle class. We'll get to that coming up. Britt Hume joins us as well. Stay with us. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day. Something else that the president said last night, he reiterated that under his plans, no one making under $400,000 would have their taxes go up even by a penny. And it's just not true. Under the Build Back Better plan, which was passed, I'll remind you, by the House Democrats, actually passed out of that chamber, every single House Democrat except for one of them 
voted for Build Back Better, which according to nonpartisan experts, actual bookkeepers, would raise taxes for tens of millions of middle class people. It also gave a tax break to millionaires in blue states. Those are facts. It's in Biden's plan, and every House Democrat, save one, voted for it. But he just comes out there and lies about the Republican tax cuts of 2017 and lies about what his own plan is. While once again, just like beating the drum on the components of Build Back Better that have gone nowhere already. This is why I called the evening overall, in my view, underwhelming. We'll see if our next guest agrees. It's our first guest of the program today, as a matter of fact. It's Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News. Britt, great to have you back. Thanks, Guy. Well, the numbers are now in, and it looks like last night's State of the Union address pulled in 32 million viewers across all of the networks, sort of a middling number. It is up significantly from last year when Biden gave the uh, joint session address, but it's still down, for example, from President Trump's last State of the Union in 2020, 37 million, so down 5 million viewers. Trump's first true State of the Union was in 2018. That was almost 46 million, so obviously Biden's off that pace. It's not necessarily a ratings game, roughly... One out of 10 Americans tuned in last night, disproportionately, we know, Democrats, because typically partisans prefer to watch their own president and the other side doesn't watch as much. What is your general takeaway, aside from the fact, parenthetically, that Fox News was in first place last night by a decent margin? So congrats to the whole team. Your take on President Biden's speech last night, any major takeaways from you? Well, I thought he started strong on Ukraine, just you know, just rhetorically, and I thought he finished strong, and I think the speech fell apart in the middle because it was simply at a moment of historical opportunity and change. I think he, he simply did boilerplate uh, laundry list of programs, um, some of which were simply repackaged uh, pieces of legislation that had already failed and so on. And it was uninspiring. The connective tissue within the speech, I thought, was was weak. Um, and so it didn't really, I don't think, move the needle very much. Say the union addresses rarely do. Uh, move the needle very much just in terms of, of popular sentiment. So that's my take on it. There was a flash poll done by CNN where they talk to people before the speech and then they have them watch the speech and then they get their reaction afterward. And as I said before, generally the audience for these things, they tend to break strongly in favor of the president. So you are more likely to have supporters of the president tuning in disproportionately. So that skews how these things come out. You know, when, when Trump would give his speeches, they would do the same thing. It was like a 75 percent approval for the speech because a lot of Trump supporters were tuning in and watching. Here was CNN's summary of their own flash poll last night. Cut 35. Our survey tonight of speech watchers uh, is about 11 points more Democratic as, as a body of people here that were polled than the overall uh, population in America. So just keep that in mind as we now show you what this instant reaction was of poll uh, of uh, speech watchers tonight. 41% had a very positive reaction uh, to uh, the president's speech. 29% somewhat positive, 29% negative. That 41%, when you compare it to last year's speech, uh, that Joe Biden gave to a joint session of Congress, that's about 10 points lower on the very positive 
uh, scale. 51% last year, you see 41% uh, today. In fact, that 41% is the lowest very positive we've seen in about the last 15 years of uh, instant polling after the State of the Union address. All right, Brett, that kind of sounds like a bit of a shrug, even from people who'd be inclined to really like the guy and like the speech. Well, two things about that. First of all, um, Biden's standing politically was much greater a year ago. True. Before all the things that have ensued have, had occurred, you know, the, the, the jump in inflation, the, uh, the, the continuing situation on the border, which has not really been improved in any dramatic way, the outbreak of crime in the cities and all that, which is, continues to alarm Americans. And then, of course, you had this situation in, in Europe where there's a war on. War in Europe, with the Russians involved against at least a friendly country, Ukraine, is a big deal. And the president, as I said, started off on that with some ringing words that were strong and well-supported and, and bipartisan groups of members got up and cheered and all that. And then, and, you know, then as if to say, okay, now we've gotten this, this the, the big elephant in the corner of the room out of the way. Let's move on. And, and then you had this same old stuff. And, and I think that explains uh, partly why it, uh, why it seemed to kind of flop with people. It just in the end wasn't up to the moment. And the moment was quite considerable. I mean, there are things that the president could have announced that he's willing to do that the political climate might now permit if he'd been willing to do it. And one of them, of course, is is that uh, we need some major, major efforts to expand our energy production, not yep. just for our own purposes, but for the purposes of our, of our allies who are now newly concerned about Russia and worried that they're too dependent on Russian energy, which I think it's reasonable to say they certainly are. Yeah. So there was Even we're, there we're to, buying to Russian oil he, still. He, he, didn't, he, he didn't want to do that. Uh, he didn't want to do that because too many in his own party are still uh, enamored of their green energy fantasies and all the rest of that. So, so you know, he would have had to break with his party to some extent, which presidents sometimes do. Um, he had an opportunity to do that. It might have changed the trajectory of his presidency, but he didn't take it. Now that you mention that, Brett, let's just dig in on that just for a moment because I saw – Saki was on with Bill and Dana on America's Newsroom this week, and they were asking her about energy production here at home. And they were bringing up, for example, the Keystone Pipeline. And Saki was saying, and I've seen journalists also sort of uh, amplifying this and applauding this, being like, ooh, Fox News fact-checked, which was, well, the Keystone Pipeline wouldn't immediately start producing gas or oil or fuel and it would you know it would be a, a period of time so this would not actually address the current crisis and the current pain at the pump and that sort of thing and okay the problem that i have with that argument brit is it's the same one we heard for eight years under obama where they were saying oh it's not going to fix anything right now it would take months or even years well that hypothetical future is now and we don't have it because even after Donald Trump resurrected the Keystone Pipeline, Biden came right back in and shut it right back down. And they want to pretend like, oh, we're the crazy ones for noting that they are openly hostile to domestic fossil fuel mining or production here in this country. And the things that they have done over a longer time horizon do have consequences. They kind of want to make it seem like that isn't really true or isn't relevant to the, the current moment. That seems like a very convenient, evergreen excuse for them. 
I agree with that uh, guy. And it's also this. Dealing with our energy situation is not really a short-term matter anyway. Um, you know, you can't – obviously, you can't ramp up energy production to a great extent overnight, although we could we could do it to some extent. Um, but the worries that we have about dependence on Russian energy, that's a short-term problem, but it's also a long-term problem if it isn't rectified. And that's the situation that Europe finds itself in. And Europe, for the first time, particularly Germany, in a long time, seems open to doing things with regard to energy and with regard to Russia that it was not in a mood to do before. That's right. And our job, it seems to me, as, as allies, is to help them do it. And to say that, well, you know, we don't want to do that because that, that will take a while is kind of a dumb answer. The omission on Afghanistan. It was another elephant in the room that went totally unspoken, except for that brief outburst from one Republican member, which I addressed earlier. But the president and his team clearly have made a decision to try to kind of excise that extremely damning fiasco from the collective imagination and memory as best they can. I mean, that that might sound like a pretty harsh take, but I don't know what other conclusion to draw. You know, Guy, I thought it, when it happened, when I, when Afghanistan, the withdrawal, the disastrous withdrawal unfolded the way it did, that it would stain this president, and the stain would be very hard to eradicate. And what we, and I think what people saw in that was a president who not only made a calamitous decision in how he brought about that withdrawal, but who defended it in a very weak and unconvincing way in the immediate aftermath. And, I'm, and I believe that that awakened in people's minds a concern about whether this man was up to this job. Mm-hmm. And when you saw him there last night, you know, he got through the speech, he stumbled in places, and, and his, you know, he w- was weak and slurred things a little bit in places. I'm not sure that the overall performance did anything to diminish the, that concern that people have about whether this guy is really up to this job. One thing that it was quite apparent that the team from the White House wanted to get out there on that big stage was using that massive megaphone of the State of the Union address to try to tamp down Republican attacks on crime and on the defund the police slogan, which has been embraced by a significant chunk of the Democratic Party. But the mainstream Democratic Party leadership is trying to say, no, no, we don't believe that, even though they were winking at it, playing footsie with it, talking about decreasing police budgets or redirecting funds, which is what Biden actually endorsed on the campaign trail, Uh, all the stuff from the riots of 2020. We remember what they said and what they didn't say, but defund the police has been so toxic for them politically that they dispatched the president in front of 32 million people to say, we don't want to defund the police. In fact, we want to fund the police. Cut 18. Here's what he said last night. We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police. Fund them. Fund them with resources and training. Resources and training they need to protect our communities. I ask Democrats and Republicans alike to pass my budget and keep our neighborhoods safe. Well, there are still, of course, members in his own party who are bear-hugging the defund the police slogan. There's also the weak on crime prosecutor DA issue. There's a lot of factors, Britt, that play into the violent crime and looting. You know, there's there's various types of crime categories that have been increasing in the last couple of years here. 
And I think that was him trying to lay down a marker for political reasons. Will it work, or are the Democrats sort of branded with that slogan for a while? I kind of think they're stuck with it. Um, you know, you remember famously Bill Clinton had a moment when he said the year of big government is over. And what Biden was saying was the year of defund the police is over. But I don't think that means that they can eradicate uh, support for that that was expressed in, in a way, as you pointed out, by him back on the campaign trail and by innumerable other Democratic politicians uh, after the George Floyd uh, killing in, 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 in the summer. So that's that's out there. And uh and uh, I think that's 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 not gone as an issue. There were a few moments where Biden tried to appeal to unity and coming together as one American family. And, you know, we're not enemies and we're all fellow Americans and let's act that way. You know, part of me just sat there rolling my eyes because this is a man who said that some of his opponents, he compared them to Confederates and you know, segregationists and that sort of thing when they wouldn't go along with the big Democrats election takeover bill. Uh, That was just weeks ago that he said that, which is a very ugly thing. And then he said, in fact, on Monday of this week, the following cut 31. We're going to keep pushing on this and we're protecting our country's threshold liberty, the sacred right to vote, which I've never seen is under such attack. You know, it's always made it harder for blacks to vote, but this is trying to be able to figure out how to keep the black vote when it occurs from even counting. Over the past year, we've directed federal agencies to promote access. Yes, about four people clap for that, but it was a lie. It's not true. It's it's hard for me to stomach appeals to our better angels and coming together, which is how partially he won the presidency, given the way that he's governed and some of the rhetoric that he's employed as president. Brett, but he, he tried. I don't really think it, it really went anywhere. But he had that passage toward the end of the speech on the unity agenda, four ideas that aren't partisan, like curing cancer and helping the opioid ap- epidemic uh, get mitigated. Right? He, he talked about four things that maybe Republicans and Democrats could work together on. I had no objection to any of those four. But Mark Thiessen on this show yesterday suggested maybe that type of element of the speech could have been put in his back pocket and saved for next year because he might have no choice but to work on a bipartisan basis next year, given what is likely coming in November. Well, I think that uh, we're in a moment in this in this country where um, some kind of bipartisan cooperation uh, of, of a major kind would be popular and would redound to the benefit of, the, of, of any president who's able to swing it. And so I think, you know, it's, it's you know, I don't think there's any use in waiting um, if he wants to do that. The problem is, though, you, he keeps poisoning the well mm-hmm. by these outrageous suggestions that what's really happening here is that, that we're trying to keep people from voting or from having their votes count, um, you know, wanting to secure the ballot and make sure the elections are honest is not voter suppression. It never has been. And th- that, however, is the charge the Democrats make, and it has po- has political power within the party, within certain elements of the party in particular. So it's, a, it's an effective weapon. It's one that shouldn't be deployed because it's dishonest uh, and terribly divisive. Um, it would be nice if we had a president who was strong enough to resist the temptation to use it. Brett Hume, 20 seconds. Kim Reynolds, the Republican governor of Iowa, the Republican response last night. Your overall assessment. Of that speech? Yeah. I went home, went to bed, and didn't watch it. <laughs> that it is 
Truth I, I, in punditry. Up all day. Um, I was exhausted. <laughs> he is a straight shooter. He's going to tell you exactly what he thinks. And if he didn't see it because he was sleeping, he'll tell you that too. Honesty, truth in punditry from Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News. Always a pleasure, Britt. Talk to you again soon. Thank you, Guy. Good to talk I'll, to you. I'll give my assessment of Governor Reynolds when we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. They're tired of people pretending the way to end racism is by categorizing everybody by their race. They're tired of politicians who tell parents they should sit down, be silent, and let government control their kids' education and future. Frankly, they are tired of the theater, where politicians do one thing when the cameras are rolling and another when they believe you can't see them where governors and mayors enforce mandates, but don't follow them. That was Kim Reynolds, the Republican governor of Iowa, last night with the GOP response to the State of the Union address. I thought she was off to a somewhat rocky start at the beginning. She seemed a little nervous. She was glancing off camera. But when she started talking about inflation and her personal story, she hit her stride. And for the next, let's say, seven or eight minutes, she was talking about one domestic issue after another, from inflation to crime. You heard some of the hypocrisy there on COVID schools. And it was pretty devastating. And if the Republicans broadly stick to that messaging for the next eight months, it's going to be a painful reckoning for the Democratic Party, in my view. So, a decent job by Governor Reynolds. Next hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. We've got a report from Ukraine and more. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Our middle hour of three. Now underway on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6. If you can't listen live, that's okay. Although we do recommend it, especially on our great affiliates. Many ways to listen live, all at GuyBensonShow.com. That's also the website where you can find out more about our free podcast. Download, subscribe. It's all free. It's all on demand each and every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Also, FoxNewsPodcast.com for the podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Fox News alert. Good day on Wall Street with losing streaks snapped. The Dow ends up 595 points, closing at 33,890. Programming note, I'll be on Kennedy's panel tonight on Fox Business Network, 7 p.m. Eastern. Hope to see you there. Joining us now is Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. His book is Obsession. Inside the Washington establishment's never-ending war on Trump, his Twitter feed is at Byron York. And, Byron, great to have you back here. Hi, Guy. Thanks for having me. We spent a fair amount of that first hour breaking down the State of the Union and and getting my take and Britt Hume's take on it. One area that I haven't really touched on yet, and I want to save this for you, was the pretty fleeting passage from the president on immigration. And... I was sitting on my couch watching, because I was one of those people, I guess, being paid to watch, so I had to. And 
I was wondering, are they going to address the Afghanistan crisis? Answer, no. Are they going to address the inflation crisis? Answer, sort of. They tried, but the solution was build back better, more spending. Uh, I don't think that people really buy that because they haven't thus far. Are they going to address the border crisis? And I guess you could say that technically he did. Let's listen to what the president said. It was very quick. Cut 19. Here's part of it. If we are to advance liberty and justice, we need to secure our border and fix the immigration system. And as you might guess, I think we can do both. And then when he delved deeper into policy, he said this, cut 41. Provide a pathway to citizenship for dreamers, those with temporary status, farm workers, essential workers. Revise our laws. So businesses have workers they need and families don't wait decades to reunite. It's not only the right thing to do, it's economically smart thing to do. That's why the immigration reform is supported by everyone from labor unions to religious leaders to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Let's get it done once and for all. He also mentioned some new technologies at the border to help detect people. But what struck me, Byron, was, and, and you can agree or disagree, He spent, I would say, at most, I'm just estimating, two or three minutes out of the hour and ten minutes on the border and on immigration general, in general. At least half of that discussion was about immigration reform and the DREAM Act and the pathway to citizenship and all that stuff. And it felt like you could have just kind of forklifted this little portion of the speech from a Barack Obama State of the Union from 2013 and just puttered over to 2022 and dropped it into this speech. And that's how it felt to me, which was completely divorced. Setting aside what you think of Dream Act or Pathway to Legalization or any of that, it is so divorced, to me at least, from the urgency of the crisis, the acuteness of the crisis, the the magnitude of the crisis at the border. He was sort of like, oh, let's just copy and paste Obama-era talking points, and we'll check the box. That is how I felt uh, watching it. I wonder what you think. Well, I agree. First of all, the the references to comprehensive immigration reform could have literally been a, a cut and paste job from the Obama years. So that's I mean, it was just total boilerplate. Uh, Democrats uh, applaud, and then they move on. What was interesting, and the thing that I was looking for in the in the address, and it came about 50 minutes into a one-hour address, uh, is whether he would acknowledge and discuss the mess on the border. And and I was only kind of half right. He 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 mentioned the border, but he acted as if the mess uh, did not exist. And I I thought that saying, coming out and declaring that quote, we need to secure our border. Uh, was it sounded boilerplate, but it was actually astonishing coming from Joe Biden because he has done so much to ensure that the border border is not secure. That's right. Uh, and and what he says, I mean, you got to go back to the 2020 campaign. He runs promising to get rid of all of Donald Trump's more restrictive policies uh, on uh, uh, immigration, on illegal immigration. He promises to stop all deportations 
for 100 days. doesn't matter what you're being deported for. He's just going to stop it. And at that very moment, almost, almost the moment he takes the oath of office, uh, thousands and hundreds of thousands and then millions of people began to come toward the U.S.-Mexico border, hoping to cross illegally into the United States because they believe they'll be allowed to stay. And, you know, just to take one number, the number of people that border officials encountered trying to cross illegally in January of 2022, just this last January, was double what it was in January 2021, Mm -hmm. which is double what it was in January 2020. Plus, plus, there was a great story in Axios about a month ago, and it was about the, the type of people coming across in such great numbers. It's not just people from Mexico or the Northern Triangle uh, countries. They, there are people from Turkey. There are people from India. There are 2,000 Russians who, were, who came into the uh, area around San Diego uh, just in December. There were 15,000 illegal border crossers from Haiti and Cuba, and then 50,000-plus from a number of South American countries. They're coming from all around the world, and there's on, they're only coming for one reason, is because they think that under Joe Biden they will be allowed to stay, and this is the man who gets up and says, we must secure our border. Yeah, just a completely empty, totally empty rhetoric. And just one more stat. We mentioned it on this program uh, late last month. And this was reported by our colleagues here at Fox News based on Border Patrol data. More migrants were released into the United States by the U.S. government last month in January at that time, January 2022, than were deported by ICE in the entire fiscal year of 2021. More releases in one month than deportations by ICE the entire previous year. And I see Bill Malugin, our colleague, tweeted just yesterday that we are on pace right now to have about half a million known gotaways this year. There have been well over 200,000 just since October already. That's on top of the four to 600,000 known gotaways last fiscal year that we know of, not to say anything of the ones that we don't know about. And that's on top of the more than 2 million border encounters that we've had with illegal immigrants over that period of time during basically the the whole Biden presidency up to this point. I mean, I understand that sometimes eyes glaze over listening to numbers and the numbers just sort of wash over you. And it's hundreds of thousands every month and all these gotaways and millions of encounters and all of that. But practically speaking, Byron, at the southern border, it is an absolutely raging, historic crisis of epic proportions. It's getting worse in some meaningful ways. And Biden talks about it for like three or four minutes, and a lot of it's just like, oh, yeah, we'll secure the border. We've got some new technology, and let's get a path to citizenship, and the Chamber of Commerce is behind it. So uh, let's get it done, folks. And there's just, to me, no connection to what's actually happening. And and I almost felt that way about inflation as well. Listening to Kim Reynolds, the Republican governor of Iowa, talk about inflation, it was much more clear, personal, impactful uh, on that issue than Biden's sort of trying to shoehorn the Build Back Better agenda into this inflation problem. Like some of the real crises that are biting American families hard, it just didn't seem like Biden stood up and tried – 
at least to feign a sense of understanding and seriousness about it. And I just I can't imagine how that benefits him or his party. No, I uh, I can't imagine either. And, and by the way, when you were talking about the plunging number of deportations and removals from the United States, it really shows you that people who are coming from other countries to cross the border are making a rational decision. I mean, they're they're making they follow the news. They're making a rational decision based on yes. what the United States is doing. One last thing, though, about what the Biden administration is doing. You remember this. Uh, not too long ago, there was a report of, of a passenger plane that lands at the Westchester County Airport, about 30 miles outside of Manhattan, in the middle of the night, okay? And it's unmarked, and a long line of single adult men began to emerge down the ladder, down steps from the plane. And there, there are private security guards there who are kind of surprised that this plane has landed in the middle of the night. They asked the people who seem to be in charge uh, of the airplane, and they are, they are told that this, this whole thing is, quote, down low stuff that we don't tell people about because uh, we don't want to attract attention. We don't want the media. It turns out these are U.S. government contractors relocating illegal border crossers uh, across the United States. This one just happened to be in Westchester County. So this is something that that the president's administration do, is doing, and he just and that affects people. I mean, because uh, it's not as if Americans are unwelcoming, but they would perhaps like to know if large, unvetted groups of uh, illegal border crossers are being brought to their community under the cover of darkness uh, in secret. So this is something that, that the president just didn't seem to think mattered to American people, to the American people. I, and I, I see what you're bringing up with inflation, too. He just seems to be kind of unaware of the effects of some of the things he's doing are actually having on Americans in their lives. Meanwhile, Byron, I want to ask you about another political story that was developing last night. It's the primary elections in the state of Texas. A few interesting storylines to follow in those races across the Lone Star State. We had Josh Krasauer here yesterday. He highlighted a couple of those for us. I was interested to see on the gubernatorial side of things, not just who would win the primaries, because it was pretty clear that the incumbent governor, Greg Abbott, I know some people out on the right were uh, grousing about him not being good enough, but that was a, a loud minority. He won running away. He won every single county in the primary. It wasn't close. And Beto O'Rourke, it was even more of a blowout on the Democratic side. He won uh, 91% of the Democratic primary vote across the state. I wanted to see turnout numbers because there had been early vote numbers sort of emerging from various places. And people were saying, wow, Republican turnout seems really strong in some of these heavily Hispanic areas along the border, really strong in parts of Houston and et cetera. As of right now, with more than 95 percent of all the votes in all total and in the gubernatorial race or top of the ticket here statewide in Texas, there were 1.9 plus million Republican votes in the Republican primary, 1.9 million plus. In the Democratic primary, it was 1 million plus. So the Republicans are leading, and I get this is not a, a perfect analogy or a prediction of what the turnout will look like precisely in November, but this is a 900,000 voter turnout advantage number for the Republican Party in Texas. Greg Abbott, for example, who won two-thirds of the Republican vote, he's got 
almost 1.3 million votes. Beto O'Rourke has 965,000 votes, and he's got 91% of his party consolidated. That is, again, not determinative. It doesn't prove anything necessarily, but it does seem significant. That 900,000 vote gap, when we're thinking about enthusiasm and intensity, it would look like a Republican base that is pretty fired up, and that matters, right? And a Republican base that is expanding. Uh, You know, I think one thing, we'll need to see more analysis of this, but Texas is one of those places where one of the most worrisome trends, if you're a Democratic strategist, in the country is taking place, which is an increasing number of Hispanic Americans uh, becoming Republicans uh, who had voted uh, Democratic in the past becoming Republicans, especially in those counties as, you're, as, you, as you go south and get closer to the border that we were just discussing. Um, this is something, if you read Democratic strategists like Rui Teixeira, um, who years ago thought that uh, an increasing uh, Hispanic American population that voted reliably Democratic would be the source of a Democratic majority for decades to come, is now warning, the same man is now warning his fellow Democrats, look, a lot of Hispanic Americans are voting for Republicans. They're voting for Republicans for the same reason that all sorts of other people vote for them. They want jobs. They want less taxes. They want a better quality of life. Uh, and it's not like a it's not a pandering uh, sort of issue. It's simply the Republican basic message appealing more to Hispanic voters. This is an enormous worry, and yeah. Texas is one of those centers of that. And law and order too, including on the issue of immigration. And last note, Byron. Interestingly, it looks and there's a few more things to shake out and potential runoffs. But it looks like along that southern border, the Republicans are going to have three Latinas as their nominees in disputed congressional districts, and that you know challenging Democrats down there. And that is a very interesting little tidbit as well about the type of candidates Republicans are attracting and recruiting, and that the electorates are selecting in a growing and expanding GOP base down in that part of the state, as you just referenced. Byron York of the Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor. Byron, always appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. So the General Assembly voted in the U.N. today on a resolution to condemn the Russians for their totally outrageous invasion of Ukraine. And this is not binding. It doesn't do anything. We know that Russia, when it mattered, has veto power at the Security Council, which they, of course, wielded and exercised on their own behalf. But still, just in terms of the international community and getting a sense of where the world stands on something, this is, I think, a useful metric. Overall, I think the U.N. is broken. The amount of time they spend condemning Israel is just shocking. I'm actually surprised they haven't tried to blame Israel yet for Russia's invasion. I mean, that's sort of how cartoonishly bad they are. Nevertheless, today, there was this vote of the entire General Assembly And the vote was 141 nations in favor of condemning Russia to five who were against. And the five was 
you won't be surprised, Russia, Syria, Belarus, which is just a puppet state for Russia, North Korea, and Eritrea. What a little group that is. You had a number of abstentions, 35 of them, some of them non-surprising, some of them a little bit more shameful, but 141 to 5. That is a bruising outcome, and the Russians definitely are feeling isolated because they are. More of The Guy Benson Show, including a report from live on the ground in Ukraine, next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday, halfway through the week, halfway through today's program. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free of charge and on demand. We now go live to Ukraine and Lviv with our guest, Mike Tobin, Fox News international correspondent who is there on the ground. And Mike, thanks for making some time for us. No, you bet. How you doing, Guy? I'm doing well. I'm very eager to hear from you first what you're hearing from everyday, ordinary Ukrainians as you walk around that city and talk to people. What's the sense, what's the sentiment among Ukrainians? Well, it's interesting. They're very sad. And the one thing I try to get from all the time, from all the time, and without being insensitive and just blurting out the question, but what could it possibly like? to know that your country is being invaded. And uh, most of them said they, 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 they just couldn't believe it was going to happen. And that's why you saw that sense of optimism uh, that led up to the unfortunate reality that, that, that this was going to happen. And it, what you see is a really unbroken resolve now. Uh, every time a new shipment of guns shows up here in uh, Lviv, the line goes around the block of volunteers who want to pick up that gun and get in the fight. And uh, it does create kind of a hectic scene out there because you've got a lot of people who uh, have AK-47s and they're uh, not that well-trained. Uh, you do have a lot of them who are retired military, but uh, President Zelensky, among other things, uh, promised amnesty to prisoners if they'd uh, join the fight. So they're trying to get every able-bodied man in the fight, but uh, it means you don't have a bunch of professional soldiers, too. Yeah, sort of like a suicide, uh, suicide Squad movie vibes, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of like let the hardened prisoners out to go fight the Russians. I mean, literally – desperate times and desperate measures that that would seem to apply here that cliche uh, come to life perhaps in Ukraine Mike there was a report today and it seems like on now on a regular basis the Pentagon is briefing reporters about the latest whether it's the Russian footprint on the ground uh, in Ukraine where they are what their progress looks like I know that you are very much looped in on that information What's the latest that we're getting from our government, and how does that seem to jive with what you're hearing from Ukrainians and, and what you're seeing, for example, on the ground? Well, uh, the one thing that everyone's watching is that ominous 40-mile-long column of, is, uh, of uh, Russian armored troops uh, weaponry that descended from uh, the Belarus border to the edges of uh, the capital city of Kiev. It just seemed to come south and stop. And uh, it's hard to tell right now. I mean, the Ukrainians have been taking pot shots at different elements in that convoy, uh, but it's a huge convoy. Um, 
you need something much bigger to take out the convoy. So they've been taking pot shots at it. That could have slowed it down. Uh, it appears they could be having logistical problems. It could even be running out of fuel. They could be waiting on uh, orders. They could be regrouping. Uh, but it could indeed be the Ukrainian resistance that's slowing it down. And the Pentagon uh, uh, it can only say that it's, it's stalled right now. So everyone's watching that. We're also watching uh, uh, Kharkiv. Uh, it looks like Kharkiv um, isn't doing well. Uh, it was subject to just withering rocket fire, artillery fire, um, uh, cluster bombs were used there, allegedly. It seems to show up in the video. Uh, and after that, after they softened the battlefield, uh, the uh, paratroopers have now shown up. And it, uh, it kind of seems like the paratroopers, uh, after the softening of the battlefield, were able to uh, just walk in uh, to that area unopposed. Also, we're looking at the far south, the uh, town of Kherson. Um, there was a pitch battle there. Uh, it really seems to be over a bridge that uh, spans the Dnieper River and connects uh, – it connects the mainland to the Crimean Peninsula, where, of course, the Russians have uh, uh, plenty of resources. Um, that bridge is very important. Right, because they stole they it. Taken, it. They stole yeah, Crimea in 2014. Yeah. Right, and they've been using it essentially as a military base. The people in Crimea, uh, they didn't fight back that hard. Some of them wanted the Russians to come in. Uh, they don't feel that way now because they're living in a, sort of a police state, and they've always been that way because uh, Russia has been, been ramping up for this moment. And uh, so they have a lot of supplies in Crimea. So that bridge is of key importance, and that's why the battle has been taking place there. Uh, it's not necessarily as pitched, and you don't necessarily have as many uh, U uh, Ukrainian resources there. But uh, the Russians say they have it. Ukrainians say no, that that, that is still very much in the fight. Uh, further to the east, Mariupol, uh, it's a bad situation there. The mayor says they have been just subject to uh, a, a day of artillery fire. Beyond that, they don't have clean water. They don't have power. They don't have heat, a uh, humanitarian uh, Situation is really we're way past that. military targets here, right? It's just like they're just shelling cities, civilian areas, left and right. You know, you heard uh, Putin say to um, uh, Marcon uh, that uh, he wasn't going to target civilians. Well, what's the line between targeting civilians and just having disregard for whether you hit civilians? Uh, when you fling rockets into a civilian population, well, you're targeting civilians. You know you're going to hit them. When you drop cluster bombs, uh, the reason that cluster bombs are, are illegal uh, is because they spread out a, a zillion little bomblets. They can cover a whole football field with one bomb. And not only will you hit anything that's there, those little bomblets, they don't all blow up. And years later, you have a kid playing in the field, picks one up, and he blows up. Last question, Mike Tobin, who's joining us live from Ukraine one of the interesting disputes that I've seen is over the death toll, both in terms of Ukrainian right. civilians, also in terms of Russian military uh, personnel and soldiers. There are estimates that we're reading from the West, from our government, that are matching Ukrainian estimates that thousands of Russian soldiers have already died in the last week of this invasion. Roughly 2,000 is a number that I've read. Is there any way of getting a real handle on that? Because I'd imagine there's a lot of information warfare and, you know, counter narratives back right. and forth. I mean, do we have any real sense of how many Russians invaders uh, have died thus far? Well, the Russians, uh, for the first time, went public and, and, and owned up to some losses. They say 497 Russian troops. The uh, Ukrainians are now saying 7,000 uh, Russian troops. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, you get a big gap. The first casualty in war is the truth. And maybe it's somewhere in between. I don't trust the Russian number. I don't necessarily <laughs> trust the Ukrainian number. But 
somewhere in the thousands, it sounds at least in the in the realm of possibility, which are pretty heavy losses over this first week uh, of this invasion of Ukraine by the Russians. And uh, Mike Tobin, along with several of our correspondents, are in Ukraine covering this hour by hour. We really appreciate your time, Mike. Stay safe, please. You got it, pal. All right. Now, I just want to quickly note one other thing and address this before I go to break. There was a story in Axios that was absolutely fascinating and intriguing. It came out yesterday. Headline is this, Zelensky assassination plot foiled, Ukrainian authorities say. Ukrainian National Security Defense Council Chief Olyeski Danilov announced during a briefing Tuesday that Ukrainian forces had foiled an assassination plot against President Zelensky. This according to a Telegram post from Ukrainian authorities. And I guess what had been claimed was that there were like assassination squads that had been dispatched by Moscow to Kiev to find and hunt down Zelensky and kill him. And I know there was a a rumor that this was part of uh, an elite Chechen special forces unit that has a whole nickname and everything that they had been tasked with this. They had been sent to carry out this assassination plot. However, their presence had been detected in Ukraine and the threat had been neutralized. And the Chechen special forces sent to go do this dirty work for Putin had been eliminated. So on its face, this would be amazing news. I want to believe it. I'm not telling you that it's not true. I don't know. What the Ukrainians are claiming is you had this, uh, you know, elite group sent in by Putin to kill Zelensky, but they were detected and they were killed. And so for now, Zelensky lives on and fights on. And that would be a a pretty significant sort of not just PR win, but, you know, tactical win for the Ukrainians as well to sniff out and then snuff out this threat. Now, here's what's especially interesting about it. Quote, we were well aware of the special operation and that it was going to be taking place directly to eliminate our president, according to this Ukrainian official in his post that he uh, put online. Ukrainian authorities had been tipped off about the plot by members of Russia's Federal Security Service who did not support the war, he added. Now, you're also getting these reports on a pretty regular basis about what Putin's mood is like and how he's dressing down people and losing his cool and blowing his stack and all this stuff. And he's isolated in this. Look, some of this could be propaganda. It could be information warfare that we were just talking about a moment ago with Mike Tobin. But let's just say that this is accurate. Let's say that the Ukrainian government is telling the truth that they were tipped off basically by effectively by spies or moles inside Russia that this was coming and this group was coming to try to kill Zelensky in Kiev and they were aware of who they were and when they were arriving and therefore they were able to intercept them and kill them. If that happened, that is going to send Putin and the high command at the Kremlin into, I think, an absolute tizzy of paranoia and concern. 
because they've got to be looking around suspiciously at each other saying, okay, who's the leak here? Who's undermining us? Who's telegraphing to the enemy what we're going to do, getting our people killed before we can do our nasty business in Kiev? Who is it telling the Western intelligence services and then the press about what's happening behind closed doors in these meetings? So even if there's an element of truth to this, I think it's certainly a way to get in the heads of the leadership at the Kremlin and Putin specifically. Now, look, if it's all made up and it's just a a war story invented for morale, you know, that that happens in war. And the Russians will say, "Okay, we know that didn't happen. We didn't send anyone. They weren't killed. They're making it up. Uh, Then, you know, perhaps it would only be a public story for the purposes of, you know, internal morale within Ukraine and sort of rallying the allies to say like, oh, you know, look at what we've achieved, even if it's not true, right? There's entirely a possibility that that's what's happening here. But I think there's maybe an equal possibility that it is largely or completely true, in which case, again, the looking over the shoulder effect in Moscow is probably ramping and ratcheting up in a very uncomfortable way. Because they're already isolated, they're already in some ways humiliated, they've been just bombarded economically with sanctions from governments, but also from the actions of various private businesses. They're being shamed in very, very public ways all around the globe, with almost the whole world rallying to the side of this sovereign country that they're trying to invade and take over which has been much harder than I think they anticipated, if you layer on top of that the worry that there are spies feeding crucial intelligence to the West and to the Ukrainians, that is another shoe that's dropped here. So I want to just make you aware that this was a story that was claimed by the Ukrainian government being widely reported. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, domestic politics, there's a soundbite to play of Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. Oh, his critics are really mad about what he said to some students earlier. We'll play it for you and react next. Guy Benson will be right back. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. So one of the recurring things that happens down in Florida, we talk about it here when it does, is Ron DeSantis, the governor, says something. And people who are desperate to kneecap him, either in this governor's race upcoming or looking ahead to 2024, absolutely lose their bleeping minds. And the panic sort of spreads on lefty Twitter and it gets amplified and they all spin themselves up into quite a frenzy. And we talk about it because it's been so blindingly obvious to me, just like a giant flashing neon sign, how much they fear him as a political actor. And look, I mean, he's, he's up by what, 8 to 20 points in some of these polls. His approval rating is strong. It's a closely divided state. I did a whole monologue a few weeks ago. It's up on YouTube. I think it has hundreds of thousands of views. You can watch it. They're afraid of Ron DeSantis. 
So whenever there's a moment where they all decide, oh, here's a way to make him look bad. Let's let's go for it. Look, the guy's not perfect. I'm going to disagree with him from time to time. In fact, I think that he might, if it passes, sign uh, an LGBT-related bill that I think is a bad bill, and I've tweeted about why. The so-called don't-say-gay legislation, I don't think that should pass. I think it is poorly crafted and not well thought through, could be abused the way it's written, it's overbroad, and DeSantis has indicated that he would sign it. I think that would be a mistake, and I'd be disappointed, right? So I'm not just going to beat the drum for DeSantis every single day, no matter what he does. But when he's right, he's right, and when he's not wrong, he's not wrong. So he did an event at, I believe, the University of South Florida, and there were some students standing behind his podium, And there's a dispute about whether they're college students or high school students, but they're standing sort of around the podium. He shows up, and they're all wearing masks for this event. He shows up and says to them, sort of off mic, but you can hear it, he's just like, you don't have to wear these masks. In fact, listen, here's what he says, cut 43. You do not have to wear those masks. I mean, please take care of them. <laughs> Honestly, it's not doing anything, and we got to stop with this COVID theater. So if you want to wear it, fine, but this is, a, this is ridiculous. And then he puts down his binder and starts talking. So he knew there were cameras. He knew there was a microphone. He decided to say that. You don't have to wear the masks, and a few of them laugh. You can see them smiling. Most of them take their masks off immediately. You don't have to wear the masks. Right? He, he says they're not really doing anything. And by the way, for the non-perfectly fitted surgical medical-grade masks, he's right. They're of limited value, let's put it that way. Plus, these are young people at... Very low risk to begin with from COVID. And he says, if you want to wear them, fine. But the COVID theater, we've got to get past it. It's ridiculous. And then he starts talking. You would think from the reaction on left-wing Twitter today and media Twitter, because a lot of that's just the same, right? They're libs, these journos. Oh, what what if they had pre-existing condition? He's being a bully. Whatever happened to choice? I thought they were supposed to have a choice. No one's going to force them to take it. No one forced them to do anything, guys. Some of them took their masks off. Most of them smiling. They were eager to. Others, one or two, didn't. People were like, yes, good for you to stand up to the governor. He specifically said you don't have to wear the masks. They don't really do much. If you want to wear them, fine. This was not an order. This was not an instruction. But he was like, dude, you guys guys don't have to wear that. And a lot of them didn't. They took it right off. But he explicitly said that they had a choice. The bully is taking away their choice. It's just pathetic how they get all fake angry about fake outrages. By the way, if all those kids had been wearing their masks in the background, they would have been dunking on DeSantis. Oh, look, he's surrounded by masked kids. He anticipated that, and he said something. Also, did you watch the State of the Union address last night and the lack of masks? Hello? It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Our final hour is now here. It's arrived on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have every single one of you listening. 
every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Appreciate it. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Many ways to listen live, including on our great affiliates all across the country or online or the Fox News app or Fox Nation or, I mean, Odyssey.com. There's many ways to listen live. Live stream. If you can't listen as we air, there's a podcast. It is free of charge on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. It's all right there. GuyBensonShow.com. Follow us on social at GuyBensonShow. That's Twitter and Instagram. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is refreshing and delicious year-round. We love it here. They're expanding into more states. We told you about four new ones last week. There are more to come, I am told. To find out where the Long Drink is sold near you, you can go to thelongdrink.com. Thelongdrink.com. 21-plus only. Always drink responsibly. Fox News alert as we enter our final hour. This from the New York Times putting some additional meat on the bones that we got earlier in the program from Mike Tobin in Ukraine. He was talking about some of the fighting just north of Crimea in the southern part of Ukraine. Kherson, or Kherson, is a city in Ukraine in that region just past Crimea that is the first major Ukrainian city now confirmed to have fallen under Russian control. That is not just according to the Russian military, but the Ukrainian mayor of that city, Igor Kolyakov, is telling the New York Times that he met with the Russian commander of that invading force, who now plans to set up a military administration to control that city. So that is the first major city in Ukraine that has now been taken by the Russians in this invasion one week in to the war. On that note, let's bring in our final guest, or not our final guest. I I stand corrected. Often at 5.05, it's our final guest. I would not want to forget about our true final guest on the show today, coming up in just about half an hour from right now. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky will join us coming up later this hour. So I did not want to look past him by any means or downplay Our current guest, our new guest, Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, columnist at the Hill, author of multiple best-selling books. His most recent book is What the Hell Do You Have to Lose? Juan, it's good to have you back here. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So I saw you yesterday, Guy, on the uh, Brett Baer show at 6 o'clock. Yeah, we were on on together, and we're going to be on Kennedy tonight together on Fox Business at 7 p.m. Eastern. So we're just paneling it up this week together. Well, but the thing I was going to tell the radio audience for the Guy Benson show is that Guy Benson is rocking this kind of new, you know, Grizzly Adams look. (laughs) Well, here's the thing about that. So throughout the pandemic, I have been growing not a full beard, but like, you know, something of a beard on and off. Not nonstop. I'll do it for maybe a week or two, and then I'll get tired of it. It goes away. Then it comes back. I have learned that I can grow a a pretty good, dark, full beard if I want to. And you just sort of trim it and keep it, you know, relatively clean. And it looks looks decent. And then I eventually it starts to just bother my skin. And I just say, all right, uh, I'm I'm sort of tired of this. The reason that I'm currently quasi-bearded is that I was on vacation at the end of last week through the weekend – and I just decided to be lazy and not shave on the course of the trip. Then I got back, and I was like, ah, you know what? The facial hair is already there. I'll just keep it for a while. So I'm, I'm glad that you noticed. Do you generally approve or disapprove? Oh, not only do I approve, I think it's hip. 
uh, I think this is what young men are doing these days, and it's kind of you know, you know that it shows that you're not kind of mainstream. You know, you got your own thing going. You're your oh, yeah. own man, and I That's think it, I, so I, I think it's a signal to the audience, but your radio audience doesn't know. So I was I thought I'd clue them in. I very much appreciate that, and so they're just sitting on the podcast. They don't know now. If they're following me on Instagram, they would know. Guy okay. P. Guy P. Benson, I will just put out the shameless plug if you want to follow me on Instagram. But you're right, and, you know, Juan, I have never been described as anything other than edgy, rebellious, and hip. That's definitely me, and the beard proves it. Juan, before we get to some more serious topics, I want to get your take on Ukraine and the speech last night from the president. We sometimes talk sports, particularly baseball. You're a huge baseball fan, huge Washington Nationals fan. I'm a Yankees fan. I've been a little bit just kind of detached from Major League Baseball the last couple of years. A lot of the games, of course, were canceled due to COVID. There's been some political stuff that's bothered me. Now we have this lockout and a dispute, a labor dispute between the players and the owners. And there was a possibility that games were going to get canceled, regular season games. And now they have. Uh, you yeah. know, spring training has been uh, sent back for at least weeks. The opening series of what was going to be the regular season, the first two series, I believe, have now been wiped away. They're not going to be made up. So the regular season's getting curtailed already and truncated based on this. I know some people blame the owners. Some people blame the players. There's a lot of fans who are not happy at all with the commissioner, who does to me seem to be uh, incompetent and in some ways like hostile to the sport itself. There's a lot of anger among baseball fans right now. And given everything else happening in the world and coming out of this pandemic, it seems like an especially inopportune time for everyone involved to be pissing off the fans, but that's what they're doing. Yeah, I think it's, it's to me, inexplicable. It, it's, I read this morning in the Washington Post, I think it was Barry Sloga, who wrote that, you know, there's nobody involved here who thinks, wait a second, who is the, what, what's the money? Where's the money for this billion-dollar industry come from? It comes from the fans. There's a civic engagement in your hometown team, your baseball team. And it extends to the children, to the you know, to the senior citizens, and nobody there in this negotiation standing up for them. It seems now. I will say that if you had to make a choice as to who is best representing the interests of the fans, I'd have to say it's the players. And why would I say that? Because the players are interested in the fact that the game should be competitive. They shouldn't have so many teams deciding. You know what? We're going to sell off everybody. We really don't want to pay even the middle-income players sufficiently, if we're not going to win at all, we can just go cheap and we still have people in the stands. That's just not fair to the fans. And, uh, you know, there's some people, uh, we're both familiar with Max Scherzer, who pitched for the Nationals and now is pitching for the Mets. He's got a huge contract. So people will buy, you know, the prize players. But when you think about, well, are they constantly trying to improve? Are they constantly trying to compete? The answer is now current system disincentivizes people from competing unless they think they can win it all. And that's just not good for the fans. Yeah, I mean, on the other hand, with, you know, sports that rely heavily on superstars and drafts, you know, you'll see NBA teams, NHL teams tanking, right, to have an opportunity to go and you know, have a good draft and bring in the next superstar. I mean, this stuff happens. I'm not... Honestly, Juan, following it closely enough to have a very strong POV on who I'm more upset at, I think it takes two to tango. 
I think right. these are a bunch of very wealthy people, you know, millionaires fighting with billionaires. And right. and they've made concessions, I know, on both sides. And the owners say, look, we, we've come even closer to what you're asking in terms of money. My position is get in the room. Don't cancel baseball games. We've been through enough as a country. Baseball is sort of like the the pleasant background music of American life for like half the year. And to deprive us of that again, not because of a virus, not because of a war, but because you guys can't figure out dollars and cents, it's just extremely off-putting to me. That That's well, my just my gut instinct. No, I mean, wait. I mean, I think we're speaking as fans. We don't have to speak in the abstract. I mean, it is very disappointing to – Guy Benson and Juan Williams. I mean, right. uh, we both we both like baseball. We think it's great fun, and as you say, background music to half the year. Uh, I would I would say there's something a little different uh, at play here, Guy, from the NBA or the NFL. I think that in the in the NBA there are very few players, and even when you see how they compete during the year, there's a push towards the playoffs. Lots of teams want to get in the playoffs That's because true. Those, those games are revenue generators for TV and at the, at the gate. And the same thing in the NFL, which has expanded its uh, playoff format for just this reason. But in the Major League Baseball, it's, it's a few teams that make it compared to the size of the entirety of the leagues. And it looks to me like, you know, there are many teams, including my own at the moment, that are just content not to compete. Yeah. And, I mean, the thing is, there, I think there should be a very strong value attached to winning your division. The, the season is so long. Expanding right. the playoffs, I'm not sure if I can get behind it. That's a discussion for another day. By the way, I appreciate that you apparently just sent Commissioner Manfred straight to voicemail there. He was calling in the background. He said, no, right. I'm, I'm on the radio, and this is important. It's the Guy Benson Show audience. We've got to tell him about the beard. Okay, Juan. Well, Let's not only move. that, it, you know, it was Mitch McConnell. And because, oh. you know, he's going to – I'll just listen to him on the Guy Benson show. That's true. He's, he's coming up here later in the hour. He's like, oh, he called you the last guest, but I am. Yeah, uh, right. uh, yeah. Let's talk about, on a much more serious note, that's a transition. Let's talk about what's happening in Ukraine, Juan. Just from your perspective, you and I haven't spoken on the air since this war broke out. In fact, I was gone. I was on vacation for a couple days when the uh, initial invasion occurred. We had a vote today at the United Nations overwhelmingly against Russia. It does seem like the world is pretty galvanized against what Putin is doing. He doesn't seem to care, although it's also not going according to plan for his side. Just sort of where your head's at right now, Juan, as you watch this playing out those many miles away. Well, I, I, the, the thing that strikes me the most is that the Russian military looks disorganized and demoralized. I didn't anticipate this. I, I, you know, I'm a Washington talking head kind of guy. And, you know, in our vocabulary, we always say America has the mightiest military in the world, and you can look at how much we spend and the like. But then we quickly follow and say Russia has the second most powerful military in the world. And it's to be feared, not only as a nuclear power, but in terms of, you know, a strong military presence. And, uh, they look terrible. They look like they can't do the job. Yeah, I wouldn't what, say that they're. I wouldn't say they're even close to number two. The only issue is they are number one in nuclear weapons. They have the most nuclear weapons still in the world, and that's right. sort of that that background piece of information that has everyone to some extent on pins and needles when these conversations are happening about you know 
their their leader's mental state. Correct, with good reason. Uh, you know, I, I can't believe that anybody, even if they are psychotic or neurotic or schizophrenic, would do that. But because he wouldn't win even that war, by the way, he would not. The United States would win that. So he knows he'd be destroyed. But you can't predict if someone is behaving in a way that our intelligence officials say is erratic and not in keeping with the Vladimir Putin, you know, KG, KGB agent that they have become accustomed to. They think he's off his rocker at the moment. That's scary. Mm-hmm. But anyway, back to what we were saying earlier, I think the point I, in my mentioning the military's dysfunction is that I think that Putin now has got himself stuck because even if he ha- he does have superior arms and it looks like, you know, he will be able to take over the Ukraine, but then he can't rule it. He will be stuck there. There will be guerrilla warfare. There will be people, the Ukrainian people, so proud, so courageous. My hat's off to them. They are going to fight. And it's not going to be like a a little thing. It's going to be door-to-door, guerrilla-type warfare for a long time to come. And that's the thing, Juan. It feels like, you know, a loss by the Russian military, which I'm not ruling out. A loss would be just a devastating, humiliating loss. But a quote-unquote win still feels, even in the medium term, like a loss. I just don't know what they are going to achieve in a lasting way that's going to be beneficial to Russia. I think the, the, the plans that were laid out at the Kremlin bear no resemblance to what's actually happening, and that reality might be setting in. I just don't know what the next move is for Putin. Juan, before we let you go, we're almost up on the break, but I did want to get quickly your thoughts on last night's State of the Union address by President Biden. I gave my opinion in the first hour. We talked to Britt Hume. We talked to Byron York. I suspect you might have a slightly different take. Well, with that lineup, I hope I'm the cleanup hitter. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that uh, he did a good job. He didn't do an outstanding job, but I think it's difficult given the moment. The thing that sticks st- with me is Republicans and Democrats standing to applaud and show that we are, as an American people, unified in supporting the Ukraine, opposing the Russians, and willing to pay a price to get involved, understanding, as President Biden said, that it may have impact on gas and energy and supplies here at home. But it's devastating to the Russians, and we want it to be. And I I was very pleased by that. Well, I will agree with that point. On the early passage on Ukraine and Russia, uh, that I think is exactly right. And we'll leave it on that note. But I have to tell you, one, you are not the cleanup hitter. The cleanup hitter is on deck. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, coming up later this hour. We have one more segment before him, though, with some audio on a popular game show that you have to hear. We will play it for you. The game show host, who's very famous, is actually weighing in about this. That's next. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Juan, always appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. And here, we will step aside and be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Happy hour. Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. All right, so this clip's going viral. It's from the classic game show Wheel of Fortune with Pat Sajak and Vanna White. And there was a contestant on there who had a puzzle almost solved. The last word had blank A blank. It didn't go well. She tried and failed several times. Let's listen to Cut 44. 
I'll buy a bell. Okay. An O. Two O's. I'll solve. Okay. Another feather in your hat. I'll solve. Okay. Another feather in your lap. No. Spin or solve. I will solve. Okay. Another feather in your map. Okay. So what letter would you like? A C. Is there a C up there anywhere? There you go. You want to solve this? Yeah, I'll solve. Another feather in your cap. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah. Yep. So, swing and a miss. Strike one, strike two, strike three. It went everywhere. How could she not get it? And Pat Sajak, because we edited that down, obviously. That was a, a painful, like, three-minute video. The game show host, Pat Sajak, who I think is a conservative, he tweeted in defense of this contestant. I think it's a really nice thing that he did. He said, it always pains me when nice people come on our show to play a game and win some money and maybe fulfill a lifelong dream, and they are then subject to online ridicule when they made a mistake or something goes awry. He said he knew exactly what was happening in real time. She guessed feather in your hat, which is what some people say, how the phrase goes, and she wasn't thinking of synonyms for hat at that point. She thought, I must be off. It must be some other word. And she got that tunnel vision, and now she's viral. Pat Sajak kindly is coming to her defense, but the video is pretty funny. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. We return to the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Last night was the State of the Union on Capitol Hill. We, of course, watched it closely. We've recapped it. We played quite a bit of audio from President Biden last night, but I want to just give you another taste of what he had to say in touting his green agenda, for example, in cut eight. We'll build a national network of 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations, begin to replace the poisonous lead pipes so every child, every American has clean water to drink at home and at school. We're going to provide provide affordable, high-speed internet for every American, rural, suburban, urban, and tribal communities. 4,000 projects have already been announced. Many of you have announced them in your districts. And tonight, I'm announcing that this year, we will start fixing over 65,000 miles of highway and 1,500 bridges in disrepair. So some of that probably sounds pretty familiar. And he was leaning into basically a deconstructed Build Back Better agenda, which has already failed in Congress. Well, joining us now is Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky. Senator, it's great to have you back on the show. Welcome back. Sure. Glad to be with you, guys. Just your overall thoughts. You were in the chamber, of course, last night. The cameras were fixed on you a couple times. What were your initial reactions? You've now had, you know, almost a day to to digest it a bit more. Your takeaways from the president last night? Well, on Ukraine, I think the tone was a little too <clears throat> self-congratulatory. Uh, I think we all know the inspiration uh, is being provided by the courageous U- Ukrainian people. 
and their incredible leader, who are uh, literally inspiring the rest of the world with their bravery, and have produced, you know, clearly the total uh, different reaction from NATO that, that Putin predicted. I mean, who would have ever thought the Germans would, uh, even in a coalition that includes the Green Party, uh, would completely reverse their policies of the last few decades, not only on energy, but also on the exportation of weapons directly to Ukraine, uh, doubling their defense budget, and saying they're going to get to 2% of GDP as rapidly as possible. <laughs> Who would have ever thought Finland and Sweden would be saying, maybe we need to get in NATO? I think from a, <clears throat> from a NATO perspective, Putin has produced more unity and resolve than any of the previous administrations I can think of, regardless of party. So that was the opening portion of the president's speech on Ukraine and Russia. A lot of unity in the room, if a bit too self-congratulatory, to use your phrase. He then moved on to the rest of the speech, and it just kind of felt like a hodgepodge to me, where he was jumping from one topic to another pretty quickly, not a lot of transitions, and it didn't feel fresh or trying to turn over uh, you know, a new leaf or turn the page on what has been a very tough first year for him as president. It was a lot of more of the same. It felt like he was giving us maybe a little bit of a, a reminder tour of the greatest hits that weren't able to pass Congress, saying, well, why don't you go pass the Democratic takeover of our elections and pass big elements of Build Back Better? I wonder what you think of that, given that that's certainly not new, and it seems almost quixotic given what's already happened in recent months. Yeah, you know what I was thinking of as I sat there and listened to that guy was uh, how Bill Clinton reacted when he got his butt handed to him in the 94 election. <clears throat> this, the next State of the Union message uh, started off by saying, incredibly, the era of big government is over. <laughs> uh, that's my <laughs> definition of a pivot. Um, you know, Biden, Biden ran as a moderate, <clears throat> but he's not been a moderate. And so the, uh, it was more the same, uh, the same old stuff they tried to pass last year. They're still advocating uh, nothing new there whatsoever. Uh, I think it was a lost opportunity for him to indicate he'd maybe heard the voices of the American people. They have been expressed. They were expressed in Virginia and in New Jersey. Um, but I think the message was, we'll stay the course. By the way, speaking of Virginia, there's a new poll out this week of Virginia voters. And Glenn Youngkin, compared to President Biden, has a net 22-point popularity advantage over President Biden in the Commonwealth of Virginia. He's plus nine, the governor is, and the president is minus 12 on job approval. So, And that's in a blue state. So that... That helps sort of paint the picture of the national environment that this president is dealing with and his party is dealing with. Last question on the State of the Union last night, Senator. It's a two-parter. There's been a fair amount of media attention to the backbencher House of Representatives member on the Republican side who at one point heckled the president uh, about American deaths in Afghanistan. 
uh, in your view, is that an appropriate thing to do? A, and then B, what do you think of the president and his team's decision not to even mention Afghanistan at all in those remarks, which spanned 70 minutes? Well, I guess the reason he didn't want to mention Afghanistan is it was a debacle. Um, I believe, Guy, that had we not precipitously abandoned Afghanistan, Vladimir Putin wouldn't have gone into Ukraine. It was the perception of American withdrawal and weakness that emboldens uh, thugs like uh, Putin. But I'm not surprised that Joe Biden didn't mention Afghanistan. It was, I think, uh, a low point in an otherwise uh, pretty botched up uh, performance all year long. Any comment on the outburst from the Republican Congresswoman? Look, I, I think civil behavior is a good idea in Congress. Uh, we act that way in the Senate. <clears throat> I don't normally give the House advice, but it uh, seems to me a uh, respectful response to the State of the Union would, uh, would be the norm. Earlier today, you had an opportunity to meet face-to-face with the new Supreme Court nominee from President Biden, Judge Brown Jackson of the D.C. Circuit, a highly anticipated meeting because of your position, of course, in the Senate, and it's always all eyes on a Supreme Court vacancy. Uh, To the extent that you're able to talk to us about your perceptions of the nominee, how that meeting went, we'd be very curious to hear. Well, these nominees don't say much. Uh, they, they've all been schooled going back to Ruth Bader Ginsburg not to really answer much of anything. But <clears throat> I think she's an intelligent, uh, very likely uh, progressive. Uh, the Senate Republican minority intends to treat the nominee respectfully. I'm not at all interested, for example, in what somebody may have written in her high school yearbook. Um, I did emphasize to her, I thought there was one thing she could safely address and people would welcome hearing. And that's uh, the same thing that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer said about court packing, both of whom made it clear that was a bad idea and was attacked, an attack on the integrity of the, of the, of the court and its independence. Uh, I didn't get an answer to that, but I'm sure she'll be asked that again <clears throat> in her uh, hearings before the Judiciary Committee. Setting aside her worldview, and I think if she makes it to the court, I think it's likely that she'll be confirmed, given the math and the dynamics. I, I'll probably end up disagreeing with much of her jurisprudence and her rulings uh, over the course of her uh, time on the court. But setting that aside, do you think, at least in terms of her CV, is she qualified for the U.S. Supreme Court? Yes, yes, no question about that. Last question, Senator McConnell. There has been some reporting in D.C. about some backroom drama within the Senate Republican conference over the NRSC chairman this cycle, Rick Scott from Florida, putting out sort of an agenda that largely is popular with the American people, but there is one tax provision that would uh, give Democrats an opening to attack Republicans. And there are reports that uh, you have been critical of including that in this public agenda that he put out there. And there's perhaps a a bit of um, disagreement happening behind the scenes. 
I think Republican and conservative voters uh, who might like you and Senator Scott, without making it personal at all, they just feel like the Republican Party needs to not blow it <laughs> this cycle. And there's a huge opportunity to win and maybe even win big in the midterm elections. Can they be confident that uh, this type of skirmish will be resolved relatively quickly and the party's going to be focused and united heading into November? Well, yeah, I think so. I think it's important to remember that this election is going to be a referendum on the performance of this entirely democratic government. And it's also important to the extent that we begin to talk about what a new Senate Republican majority would do uh, to make it clear that we're not going to raise taxes and to make it clear that we're not going to sunset Social Security and Medicare in five years. Uh, not only would that be disastrous government policy, it would lead uh, to having the fall be a referendum on us rather than them. And if it's just a referendum on them, based on some of the polling data that I just referenced a few minutes ago, I think it'd be uh, perhaps a very rough night ahead for the Democratic Party in November. You predicted last time we spoke that Republicans are in the driver's seat, House and Senate for November. We'll revisit that in the weeks and months to come as we have you back. Senator McConnell, always appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, God. And we'll be right back after this. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in today and every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. As soon as the show is over, shortly, this program becomes a podcast. The whole thing on demand, totally free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts every day. Well, at the beginning of the show and peppered throughout, we went through our analysis of the State of the Union address last night. We mostly stayed on substance and addressed the points, some of the optics, issues, etc. There were also some, shall we say, superficial moments that were still nevertheless noteworthy or bizarre. For example, at one point, President Biden was talking about Ukrainians, and he referred to them as Iranians in Cut 6. Putin may circle Kiev with tanks, but he'll never gain the hearts and souls of the Iranian people. Putin may never gain the hearts and souls of the Iranian people. Although the Iranian regime has certainly worked closely with Putin in some ways. And I get it. There are flubs. People misspeak. I do it on this show all the time. Talking three hours a day, you make mistakes. There were a lot of difficulties last night for Biden. He is not a great speaker to begin with. He seems to be getting worse. And this is a big platform where, according to Mark Thiessen yesterday, you really rehearse repeatedly. And there's actually a video going around where you can see Kamala Harris behind him over his shoulder, the vice president sitting there in her brown suit up against the brown chair like she's trying to sort of like fade into the background. When he calls them Iranians, she mouths almost instinctively Ukrainians. Like that's what Joe meant, everyone. He also said this at one point, which I was dumbfounded by. Like, I I was trying to decipher what he was trying to get at. I don't know. You let me know, maybe. Cut 39. We won't stop. Because you can't build a wall high enough to keep out a 
a, a, a vaccine, the vaccine can stop the spread of these diseases. Like, did he think he was going to go make a wall-related Trump shot and then his brain realized that it didn't make sense because he was talking about the vaccine? You can't build a wall high enough to keep out a vaccine. What? What? Was, was anyone talking about building a wall to keep the vaccine out of the country or something? And then he says, oh, the vaccine can stop the spread of these diseases. I guess uh, several diseases at this point. That was kind of a, a very strange moment to me. And when he would sort of have these tricky traps, rhetorical traps for himself, and he was trying to get out of the quicksand, you could see Harris and Pelosi looking solemn and as earnest as possible, nodding along as if to will him out of his little predicament that he'd created for himself. All right, Joe, you can do it. Get to the next sentence. Then at the very end of the address, he had this sort of soaring conclusion. It really felt, and I think Dana Perino made this point on Fox News last night, It felt like the beginning part of the speech was written recently to reflect the latest in Ukraine and what's happening with Russia. I thought that was, for the most part, as I said, pretty strong. The end was supposed to be a grand crescendo to get the applause going and rally the audience and end on a high note. And then he did. He said, God bless you all. He always likes to say, God protect our troops. Thank you. And then he decided at the very, very end, literally the last thing he said from the lectern was an ad lib And it was just kind of weird and confusing. Cut 40. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Thank you. Go get him. Go get him. Who? Him? Her? Maybe he was just trying to say, like, go get him, guys. Go do the things. But he fairly clearly articulated him. So then people were speculating, is he talking about Putin here? What, what, what is this? I think that's probably reading too deeply into it, in my opinion. Then there was the very, very bizarre spectacle. I don't know if you saw this. Biden was talking about our troops and veterans who got sick while serving. And Pelosi, I don't know what got into her, some sort of malfunction, but she stood up out of her chair had this grin on her face like she was hearing something, like a little secret that she really liked, and she was like rubbing her knuckles together as she stood. And then she sat back down like the animatronic controls finally kicked back into place. It's like, oh, I should be sitting here. But it looked like she was like scheming, like, yes, yes, tell us. And it would be weird generally, but especially given the subject matter that he was addressing that was, uh, you know, uh, that was weird. That was not normal. And then my favorite little gif-worthy moment of the night was Chuck Schumer standing up for a standing ovation just as the camera cut to him, but no one else started to clap, and the moment sort of passed, and he sheepishly looked around a little bit embarrassed and sat back down. I will likely be using that gif for a long time to come. It was just perfect. So you wanted some hot takes, some unserious analysis of the State of the Union? You got it right here in our home stretch. 
back tomorrow for the Thursday edition of the Guy Benson Show from South Florida. We will talk to you then. See you on Kennedy tonight, FBN 7 p.m. hour. Until then, have a fantastic evening. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.